Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday Dhamma broadcast. Today's topic is dependent origination. I realized I haven't actually given a talk on this in a long time. We It comes up a lot, either in questions people ask, or this morning it came up in our Dhamma study. We're studying the uh, Maha... What's it called? Mahatana Sankh... Mahatana Sankhya Sutta. Manjimanikaya 38. And it's largely about Paticca Samupada. It's in response to a monk who believed that Consciousness is the same from one moment to the next and from one life to the next. There's one consciousness, one mind that exists like a soul. Which, of course, the Buddha didn't teach. And the distinction is This distinction is related to the perspective that we take in Buddhism. It's not just the denial of the existence of a soul or a mind that persists. It's about describing what you experience when you take a perspective uh, an experiential perspective on things. So instead of describing and, and relating to reality in terms of concepts, people, places, and things, you describe what you actually experience. You describe what presents itself directly, not what is inferred indirectly. Like if you see a picture you see uh, when you open your eyes you see a person in front of you to not say that's a person but to say that's seeing and to acknowledge that person is the conjecture that the mind comes up with it's it's a uh, it's a sanya it's a, a recognition maybe you know that you know the person and you say this is that person or that but that's not what you're experiencing. That's not directly presenting itself. All that's directly presenting itself is the light, the, the image, which the mind then is able to interpret to know what it is that you're envisioning, but that's all interpretation. And it could be an illusion. You can see something that's not actually there. What you see is there, but all you see is light. All you see is the, the image. And so when you take this perspective on things, there's no room for a persistent entity of any sort. In the beginning as a meditator, there are preconceived notions about reality, about the mind, about experiences, including the idea that there is something persistent, but when you engage repeatedly, methodically uh, in the practice of mindfulness, observing what actually presents itself, you begin to see that this isn't the case. And what you begin to see, uh, apart from the incessant arising and ceasing of, of mental and physical realities, is what the Buddha called dependent origination. It's a way of describing the important truth that you realize through the practice of meditation. It's, it's a way of, of 
extrapolating on the Four Noble Truths. And so it's a, one of the primary teachings of, of Buddhism. It's the realization that the Buddha came to and how he described the realization in simple terms relating to his experience of becoming enlightened. So the, the teaching of Paticca Samuppada of dependent origination is, on the one hand, incredibly simple. Incredibly, because it, it's, just, it's talking about something that is, in fact, complicated. So on the one hand, it's very simple. On the other hand, it describes something that is incredibly complex and it's deceptive. So it's deceptively simple. So much so that the Buddha had to reprimand Ananda, who came to the Buddha and said, This teaching of dependent origination seems so clear to me. And the Buddha said, Don't say that, Ananda. It's a very hard thing to understand. easy to think you understand it and so there is actually some controversy differences of opinion about what the Buddha meant what did what Paticca Samuppada what dependent origination means some people get quite vehement about their views on what it actually means which is a testament to how difficult it is to understand two groups of people might say Oh, this is so easy to understand. It means this, but but the two groups have a different idea of of how easy it is to what it what it, the easy understanding is. So I would caution you against thinking that you understand it fully. As with everything, you should never trust your own confidence. Never rely upon the fact that you are confident about something, because that's one of the first things we tear down in meditation practice. If you're not open to being proved, being shown wrong by your own experience, it's very difficult to progress. It's called niyata micha diti. If you have wrong view that is entrenched, stuck, fixed. So the simple explanation of Paticca Samuppada is simply as the Buddha described it. We have a list of realities that arise in sequence. Or well, that's not correct. A list of realities that depend on each other in a chain. So they're not chronologically sequential necessarily, but they're dependently originated. They arise dependent on each other, one after the other. So sometimes it's, it's arising at the same time, but you need the previous one to arise if the other one is going to arise as well. So it starts with ignorance. Avijja Pachaya Sankara. With ignorance as a cause, formations arise. And here, formations is referring to mental formations, referring specifically to ethical and unethical inclinations of mind, where we form in our mind opinions about things where we make decisions, we form these decisions based on ethical or unethical premises, meaning we get angry about something and so we incline towards violence or we get greedy about something so we incline towards ambition or we have kindness and thoughtfulness and so we incline towards giving and charity and support love, compassion, friendliness. 
clarity, contentment, and so on. So good and bad things. We incline towards cultivating, incline towards cultivating a result. Sankara Pachaya Vijnana, consciousness is a, is a result of those formations. So as a result of those deeds, we're going to have different experiences. When we have ethical or unethical intentions and volitions, our consciousness, our, our awareness, our experiences are going to change. If we're kind to people, we'll experience results based on that kindness. If we're cruel to others, our experiences will change accordingly. And based on consciousness, there arises experience. There arises nama rupa, which is body and mind. There arises Con, uh, the six senses that arises contact with the six senses this is just a detailed description of the nature of experience there arises feeling based on feeling there arises craving based on craving there arises clinging based on clinging there arises becoming Based on becoming, there arises birth, old age, sickness, and death. So it's a description of how suffering arises. It arises through a continuation of our ambitions, of our volitions, our, our desires, our attachments. That get us caught up in rebirth, being born, and the rebirth, the birth of our actions, our activities, our engagements. But on a deeper level, if you look closely at this sequence, it's actually talking about three different things. And so if I were going to go through Patichasamupada in detail, it could take a long time. There's so much that can be said, and, and it's such a detailed, deep teaching that there is much that could be said. But in brief, I'd like to talk about these three things that Patichasamupada teaches us. And that'll help to understand what I just went through, the, the, the links, the, the links in the chain. So the first thing it teaches us deals with the first part, the part avijja pachaya sankara. And this is about past lives. It's also about the present life. It's also about future lives. But it's a description of how we come to be born, how we come to find ourselves in this position. Not, not in a metaphysical way or, or a philosophical way, in a very practical way. In a very practical sense. Practical in that it helps us to understand what we've been doing wrong, what we've gotten wrong. And the interesting thing about Buddhism is that goodness, in in fact, is even a part of what we've gone, what we've done wrong, or what we've done wrong doesn't doesn't ex expressly have anything to do with our good and evil intentions. It's not about whether we did more evil or did more good per se. The only benefit to goodness, in fact, is not the, the result of the goodness in terms of giving us a better life, making us experience more pleasure and so on. But it's about its, a its ability or its support in allowing us to see the futility of intention in general, including the fertility of goodness. Because when you cultivate good things, the reason why we'd call them wholesome and good is because they support and, and collect 
and order the mind. Those things that are evil are specifically evil because of their effect on the mind, their deleterious effect, how they harm the mind, prevent the mind from seeing clearly, they, they obstruct our vision. But avijja pachaya sankara is a very powerful teaching in that it's, it says that the problem isn't whether we're doing more good or more evil. The problem is that we don't see clearly. We don't have a clear understanding of the nature of our experience. And a result, as a result of that, we engage in mental volition. We engage in ambition, even good ambition, trying to make the world a better place, for example. It's not that trying to make the world a better place is, is itself a bad thing. It's that it doesn't actually prevent us from making the world a worse place in the future. It doesn't make us, it doesn't free us from evil intentions, which is a problem that people who try to create good in the world often face. They face burnout. They face their own limitations. They face their own unwholesomeness. So the solution isn't just to do more and more good things. That no matter how beneficial those are for the mind, if you don't use the mind to see clearly, to remove ignorance, you'll never actually accomplish anything lasting. Everything that you accomplish can and will eventually become undone. So this is, well, while it is describing, what it's describing is how we've gone through the rounds of rebirth and how we continue to go through the rounds of rebirth. Because sankara pachya vinyana, because it creates vinyana, which refers to the rebirth. When we're born in whatever realm, we have this consciousness that arises. And that happens again and again based on our inclinations, based on the quality of our mind. So this teaching is describing that, past lives, future lives, the, the, the rounds of samsara. But it's also putting, putting it in the context of meditation practice because it's talking about, uh, about ignorance, which is the the, the target of insight meditation of Vipassana meditation to see clearly and free ourselves from ignorance, from not knowing. Because once we know and see, then you know, there's, there's no getting rid of ignorance. Ignorance is already gone. The second thing that Paticca Samubhada teaches us is in the second part. This is the part from consciousness all the way up to becoming. And this teaches us the, or one way of understanding the process of experience. And the process of experience can be separated into two parts, the innocent part and the guilty part. Experience has no uh, danger in it. There's nothing about experience that is problematic until you get to the point where because of your ignorance you give rise to craving because you think that something can be gained something is to be gained something is to be achieved to be fixed to be accomplished to be destroyed something is to be done about our experience besides simply understanding it and seeing it clearly Once we cross that line, or because of that perspective, that idea that there's something to be gained, that's what gives rise to suffering. That's what, that's what causes us to become entangled with samsara. 
And so this has, on a philosophical level, it has a value of teaching us what we do wrong or where we go wrong. But more importantly, on a practical level, it describes our experience. And it reminds us about the constituents of experience, consciousness, physical and mental um, base of consciousness or, or moments of experience. So when you have consciousness, then there is the experience, the physical and mental aspect of an experience, the physical aspect being the tension in the body, the hardness, softness, heat, cold, etc. And the mental being the experience, the consciousness of it, the judging of it, the recognition, the interpretation, all of that, and the feelings, the, the pleasant and painful feelings. It reminds us that there are the six senses, and the six senses are where uh, experience arises. And how the salient quality of an experience is vedana. Vedana meaning the, the feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neutral feeling. And it's based on these three that we go wrong. It doesn't mean that if you have vedana, if you have a pleasant feeling or a painful feeling, it actually isn't the case that you must necessarily react or, or cling to it and get caught up in it. You can experience great pain without getting getting caught up in it, without reacting to it. And likewise with great pleasure. There's nothing unwholesome or unethical about pleasure. There's nothing wholesome about it either. Pleasure, pain, even calm feelings that many meditators crave or, or um, yearn for or conceive of as being a goal. That somehow if I felt calm feelings, I would have achieved something and would put meaning in it that it's somehow an ethical mind state, a useful, a helpful, a wholesome mind state. It's not actually true. There's nothing wholesome about the feeling at all. And of course, the craving for it is very unwholesome. I mean, it's a cause for suffering, cause to get caught up in it. But because of ignorance, because we simply don't see any of these things as they are, that when they do arise, and the Vedana does arise, we react to it with craving, tanha. And with craving comes clinging, and by that point the horse is out of the barn. There's no closing the gates now. With craving as a result, there's becoming. Becoming, becoming refers to any manifestation of our craving. Once the craving arises, there's no helping the manifestation in various ways. Sometimes it manifested as a, manifests itself as a physical act, a verbal act, manifesting itself as a mental act. Whatever, at that point we've already gotten caught up, become entangled. And as a result of that, arises the third part. And so the third part is it, not so complicated, but if we're going to say it teaches us a third thing, it's that it teaches us how suffering arises and that our reactions, our clinging and craving for things leads to this very Buddhist concept of suffering. It paints a picture of the unending round of rebirth birth, old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, despair. This whole mass of suffering, dukkha khanda. Eva metasa dukkha khandasa samudeo hoti. Eva metasa kevalasa dukkha khandasa samudeo hoti. This is the origination of this entire mass of suffering. 
an important teaching worth learning more about. Mahasi Sayada has a book about it if you're interested in reading more. But I like to keep it, keep these at a reasonable length so that if people have questions, they can ask them. So I'll stop there. From now on, we'll ask that the chat only be for questions. Please post your questions in the YouTube live chat. And I have Chris here to ask them. And behind the scenes, Ulu and Jim are organizing and categorizing them. We're mostly focused on, or we're firstly focused on questions relating to meditation practice, questions that really need an answer, where an answer will be, we think will be directly helpful for the person asking in support of their meditation practice. All right, let's begin. Is there a way to see and note, even for just a moment, that consciousness arises and falls? For example, eye consciousness starts and then stops and then starts again. Well, yes, meditation is that, mindfulness is that. It's not, remember, it's not seeing or noting in the sense of having any conscious thought where you say, oh, it arises and ceases. It's about seeing in the sense of observing. And of course, that's what you observe when when you you watch. If you get into a frame of mind where you're actually paying attention, of course, you'll see consciousness arising and falling all the time. You'll, see, you'll often see how chaotic the consciousnesses are, where one moment of consciousness is in on one train and then another moment of consciousness is in a completely different frame of mind. We can't see it normally because it's very quick. It's quicker than we are. Our minds are, are slow, are, are distracted, are diffuse. When your mind becomes sharp and quick, when the faculties become sharpened, mature, then you're able to see it quite clearly. I mean, that's an important part of what we're trying to see. When being mindful, is it right effort to let your attention wander freely and just look at intentions of controlling your attention as just feeling or wanting? No, don't start from a point of view of letting your attention wander freely. I mean, that in itself is an intention. Instead, you should have the intention to focus on an object. Try to have some sort of a regimen. This is why we give you objects to focus on. You're trying to train the mind. So there is some intention involved. Letting your mind wander is not intent at all. It's not meditation at all. Um, though it's, I mean, it's deceiving. What you're saying is a bit, is, I mean, you're not being deceptive, but it's, it's a bit vague. So you're not trying to stop your mind from wandering. Um, so is that letting it, that that's just not how you should approach it. You shouldn't say, okay, wander mind, or, or I'm going to let you wander. No, do something, engage in some activity, repetitive activity with the mind in order to train the mind, in order to, to bring about this, this perspective or this clarity of mind. This is how meditation works. You give your mind a task to do and then you watch it as it does the task or doesn't watch it when it wanders and what you don't want is to get upset because you can't actually let or not let your mind wander you can just react when it does wander right there's nothing you can do to say okay i'm holding on to you really tight with my hands and so you're not going to go anywhere there's no faculty of mind that does that allows that there's only the reacting and so what you don't want is to react when you do wander. The reaction should be to see clearly that you've wandered, to remind yourself, not to see clearly, sorry, to remind yourself, which allows you to see clearly about it. So we just say wandering or thinking or distracted, and then go back to your work, go back to the stomach, which is what we 
encourage people to focus on and watch rising fall. I started to let go, and it is a very nice feeling. Sometimes it's hard to meditate, and I think of not meditating more. Should I not do it too much? I have a feeling that my life is turning around because of meditation. Meditation is always going to be hard. It's not, um, I mean, until you become enlightened. It's not something you can cling to. It's not like other things where you start to like it. You can never really like meditation itself. You can like the concept of it. You can um, enjoy it and get attached to feelings you might have, but you can't like actually being mindful because that's the whole point of it is to free yourself from liking. And so it's always going to be a challenge to keep yourself doing it. You need something beyond liking. It has to be because of wisdom and understanding and, and urgency, a sense of urgency. So don't be discouraged when it's hard to meditate. And if you think of not meditating, just note that, thinking. But of course, if you have very nice feelings, that's dangerous. That can cause you to become complacent too. And that's a reason to not want to put out exertion because you're con you're content with the pleasant feelings. So you don't have to deny those feelings, but you have to be careful not to cling to them because clinging, of course, gets you caught up in them. And as said, just keeps you tied to samsara. I mean, it distracts you. So make sure you're noting those as well. Sometimes the mind lingers on sitting or touching for several seconds. Is it appropriate to note sitting or touching multiple times, or after noting once, should I try to move to the next? Move to the next after you've noted. When doing walking meditation, my opposite heel begins raising before my toes grip the ground. Is pace or tempo important? Well, you shouldn't you should stop stop them walking between each foot so don't lift the heel consider that doing something technically wrong i mean it's not evil or anything but that's wrong technique the foot should stop moving before the other foot starts lifting so try and change that my grandmother is dying in one or two days What's the best of the best I can do for her? How can I be the best support for my father too? I live in a different country right now. Well, I don't know if you have contact with them, but or try and be as mindful as you can. When you're mindful, you can be supportive. Mostly just be there for them. I mean, there's not a great, incredible amount you can do. People have their own lives and their own paths to follow. But the best you can do for others is to be present for them and be something that they can rely upon without without having any of your own um, any of your own benefit that you know looking for for to gain something. when you're just there for them or just there really mindfully. It's a very, very supportive state. I can have huge emotional feelings left over from strong dreams. How do I not get lost in dreams? Well, when you're dreaming, you can't really be mindful. So not generally speaking, so. It's not something you have to be concerned with or try to change. 
but through the practice of mindfulness, your 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 the fabric of your mind changes, and so your quality of your dreams changes as well. It just takes time. There's nothing wrong there. I mean, there's nothing seriously wrong there. It's just deal with it when you wake up and try to be mindful before you go to sleep. Why does avijja arise and how can we note it while practicing? Okay, this is not a very good question. I mean, it's an expected question. But I want to help you understand why this is not a very good question. First of all, avijja is, is something that's lacking. So it doesn't actually arise. Now, it is true that there is a cause of avijja stated. But that cause is just the hindrances. So... And that's telling itself. That's an important thing to understand. What is the cause of avijja? The cause of avijja is the hindrances. Why is that? It's because the hindrances obstruct our vision. So avijja is there because of our lack of clarity. And once we free ourselves from the lack of clarity, once we create the clarity of mind, avijja disappears. How can we note it while practicing? When you have avijja, you're not seeing clearly. When you note something, you're seeing clearly, and there's no avijja. That's the whole point. You don't note avijja. So it is a good question. It's good that you ask, but it it relies upon faulty premises. So it's a good question. I mean, it it provides an opportunity to explain things more clearly. Good question, because it's not a good question. Sometimes since meditation breaks many concepts, even of self, I am left with void. How to note that? What you're left with is experience. You just call it void. So you have to ask yourself, or I have to ask you, what do you mean by void? You have to ask yourself, because I'm not going to get your answer. But when you ask yourself, what do you mean by void? What you're trying to get out of that is a more accurate description of what it is that you're experiencing. Void is just a concept. It's an idea of of something that you're experiencing. You don't experience things. You experience experiences. So what is it that you're experiencing? Void can mean something that you're not experiencing. So then you don't note things that you're not experiencing. Note what you are experiencing. But it can also mean a sense of quiet. It can mean a sense of calm. It can mean the thought, the perception that there's nothing there. And all of those things are are experiences that arise. And you can note any of them. Calm, quiet, thinking, even the wondering, maybe the liking of the feeling. Maybe you think maybe it's you've achieved something as a result. I'm not saying that you haven't, but that's not the point. The point is that it has arisen or it has come to be like that. And so you note how it has come to be. How could I do an intensive practice to achieve results as soon as possible? Well, find a place where you can do an intensive course under a teacher. That's the most direct answer. But more indirectly, I would have you consider to try and do or at-home course, or something like that, where you're practicing on your own, sort of preparing yourself for intensive practice if you've never done intensive practice before. Uh, we have a link to our at-home course that you can do through our Discord server. Link is in the description. Uh, and if you've done that, or if you think you're ready to do an intensive course, well... There are places where you can do that. I guess I wouldn't um, be too focused on achieving results as soon as possible, per se. I mean, in focusing on intensive practice is a great thing. I mean, it's the right thing to do. But try and do it just because it's the right thing to do without being concerned how quickly the results will come. It's like dedicating yourself to the work and put in the work as as intensively as you can.
During sitting meditation, I can notice the rising of the belly, but I often can't notice the falling. What can I do to notice the rising and falling both clearly? Falling by its nature is less clear. It's less less uh, pronounced. So just don't try and note what you think the rising should be. Try and note the actual feeling of deflating. And it's it's more subtle than you might think. It's quicker than you might think. Try and just note whatever you can when you feel it, when you do have a feeling of the deflating, the release of tension. It might not be very long or profound or, or pronounced. And part of, part of that is seeing that there's a difference between what you perceive or what you think the falling should be and what it actually is, which is an important, important um, perception, important realization. When you, your mind will start to shift to not expect or anticip, anticipate how things should be, rather just experience them as they actually are and how that changes from moment to moment. My life right now feels so uncertain and overwhelming that I feel like giving up. I don't see a way out. I've been meditating, but my situation won't improve from that alone. What do I do? Well, giving up is is a good part of meditation practice. But if you mean by doing something drastic, then that's not really giving up. Giving up is in some ways becoming resigned to let life take you where it will. When you've reached rock bottom, you're actually safe because there's nowhere lower. You, you can't go any lower. That's an, I think that's a, that's a George Orwell quote, which really resonated. I read it many years ago, but it resonated with me, or I remembered it when I started doing Buddhism, practicing Buddhism, because uh, it reminds me of being a monk when you give up everything and, and you have nothing, you can't go any lower. So you're safe. Meaning, no matter what happens to you, in the end, it's all just things happening or experiences happening. So giving up is a big part of getting to that point where you have no expectations about life. Because you see, the un the feeling of uncertainty and the feeling of over of it being overwhelming, is predicated on you having some expectation of how life should be, or or a perception of how life just can't possibly be, or how you could not possibly uh, allow it to be. When in fact, that might be what happens. If you look around in the world, we're not all fortunate to live comfortable lives like you see on TV. Although even the lives you see on TV are often plagued with uncertainty. But our idea of how we see others living is all just an idea, an illusion. Life is uncertain. And once you appreciate that, you can't actually suffer from it. And meditation doesn't change your life like that, but it helps you see, helps you helps you live and, and to some extent accept, but it's not quite accept, it's just be be above or be beyond, be independent of your circumstance. Not be affected by the changes of life. How do I note when there is nothing to note? There's always something to note. If there's the ability to note, then there's always the mind aware of something. If you're aware that, or if you have a perception that there's nothing to note, you have to note perceiving or knowing, we would say knowing, or you could say aware. If you think that there's nothing to note, you could say thinking. There is a lot of worry and even fear arising, and sometimes I even don't know the reason why. Is it enough to just note it, or can I do something else? Yes, we don't need to know the reason why. That's not actually helpful. And in fact, when you realize that 
sometimes you don't even know the reason why. That's an important step in the practice because you're seeing that there isn't actually a reason why. Normally we associate this happened and so I got worried, but that's not true. It happened and because of your delusion, because of your ignorance, you reacted inappropriately by getting worried. Now you're starting to see that that um, habit of getting worried has taken on a life of its own and you're just getting worried for no reason. You're getting afraid for no reason. When you start to see that, you've gone beyond the uh, reactionary state of mind where where you 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 identify with it. I get worried when this happens. If you this if you do this, you're going to make me worried, right? I think when we say things like "you make me worried" or "you make me afraid" or "I'm afraid of spiders" or so on, that's not actually the case. We have habits, and these habits are really have a have a life of their own. As you start to see that they're not actually caused by anything besides delusion and ignorance and habit, then you've you've taken an important step into seeing that they're useless, that they're unmanageable, that they're not you. And so, yes, just noting them is absolutely enough to see that more and more clearly and to, to dissociate yourself from them where you don't identify with them, where you don't encourage them and feed them or react to them where you begin to let them go. During meditation, at what level should we stop noting? At the level when you enter into Nibbana. Until that happens, you should not stop noting. How many hours does one meditate in an intensive course? What would be the minimum amount of days that would be reasonable? I am considering trying it, but I'm also scared of it being too hard. We don't count the hours. So what's hard about it is you don't have any of your entertainment and diversions and and socializations. So a good way to prepare is to sort of begin to try keeping the eight precepts. To, to slow down your entertainment, your socialization, uh, and of course to start meditating one or two hours a day. But we don't count the hours in an intensive course, we just count the moments. I, I, I was once asked to teach at a very famous meditation center in Thailand. It was a rare opportunity really, and it was sort of because they just didn't have anybody else. I wasn't a well-known or, or a, a very respected teacher at the time. I was understood to be just a young monk, but I didn't have anybody. And I spoke English and it was for the international students. And at this place, they required their students to do a certain number of hours a day. And it was really stressing the meditators out and it wasn't really conductive. I don't really agree with that philosophy. So the meditate one meditator came to me and he was really stressed out, but he came and he said, it was hard, but I did it. I did 10 hours of meditation a day or whatever, because <laughs> that's what he had been told to do. And um, I told him what his next exercise was, and one of the assistants asked me, how many hours are you going to give him to do? And I said, today I want you to do 18 hours of meditation practice. And his eyes just bulged. And I said, here's what, here's how, here's what I mean. As soon as you wake up in the morning, I want you to start to be mindful. You know, say to yourself, lying, lying when you sit up, say sitting when you're walking around. And I explained to him how to be mindful in daily life. And I said, I don't care how many hours of intensive meditation you do. Do some in the morning, some in the afternoon, some in the evening. There's not much else to do. So whenever you can, do as much as you can comfortably. But the important thing isn't how many hours of meditation you do. It's how mindful you are. And I told all the students this a very similar thing. And up until that point, what they had been doing is being very intent on his very um, challenging number of hours that they were supposed to be putting in. And be, and being fixated on them actually makes it more challenging. Because, you know, oh, only two more hours to go and you're thinking about the time. You're not very mindful. But then outside, the worst thing was outside of that practice, they were very unmindful. They had never been told to be mindful outside of those hours. 
So they would sit around chatting and it was causing a lot of problems with the center. There was complaints and uh, just criticisms about the foreign meditators who didn't take it seriously. It wasn't their fault. They didn't know any better. And as soon as I changed this, not, it's not, not, I'm not bragging so much as pointing out my conviction in this teaching, which was passed on to me by others. So it's not even about me bragging about my own ability to teach. Everything changes. The whole uh, atmosphere of the international section changed. They were mindful. They were mindful the whole day. They were quiet. They were not talking. How can you talk to each other when you're trying to be mindful every moment of the day? And they were far less stressed because they had no quota that they had to fill. And because they were mindful. And when you're mindful, of course, you're less stressed. It actually is much easier than it seems. It's not easy. It's a very challenging thing. But What's easy about it is how easy it is to actually complete something that's very, very difficult to do. It means your capacity to complete the course is actually higher than you, you might think when you approach it with the right attitude. This attitude of moments rather than hours, for example, moments instead of days, that sort of thing. Try and be in the present moment. It's a very important practical teaching to not go back to the past, not worry about the future, see whatever arises clearly in the present moment. It's one of the most, most taught teachings of the Buddha, in fact. And there's a teaching that he gave that has like, I don't know, ten. it has a whole section in the Majjhima Nikaya that's just this sutta again and again and again where the Buddha reminds us, among other things, just to stay in the present moment. What is the first step for somebody looking to get into meditation? It can be intimidating for a newcomer. Well, I'm glad you asked. The first step is, and this is in our tradition, the first step depends on who you're talking to and what tradition, because let's let's get some one thing clear. Looking to get into meditation doesn't actually help you explain what it is you're looking to get into. Because meditation can mean a million different things. And it does. Maybe not a million, but countless different things that all relate to mental training. And not, not all mental training is the same or has the same result. You can train your mind in such a way that you go crazy. That's possible. It's not advisable or it's not that common, but it can happen. There are ways. You can train yourself to be a mean and vindictive and evil and unpleasant person. Even, but even just referring to wholesome meditations, there are many different kinds and they have different results. So what my answer beyond that is just going to refer to our meditation tradition, which is a specific meditation tradition. We would say it's in line with the teachings of the Buddha that allows you to see the, the truths that the Buddha taught and free yourself from suffering. So that's our meditation to begin that, I'd recommend that you read our booklet on how to meditate. We have a link to it in the description, and it's on screen as well. And once you've done that, the next step would be recommended to sign up for an at-home meditation course. It's all free. We don't charge for these courses or any of our courses. So you can sign up, and then we meet once a week. We have a voice conversation, and you ask me questions, I'll ask you questions, and I'll give you a new exercise every week. That's how you get started in our tradition. That's how I'd recommend. There are other ways, but that's how I recommend people to get started in our tradition. I live with my parents, and meditation changed something. I feel uncomfortable when I'm with them because the atmosphere is not always nice. What can I do when I cannot avoid them? We shouldn't try to avoid... Um, it's good to be by yourself, so you should be content or, or in, intent on being alone. Solitude is not something to be to be uh, trivialized. 
So there is that, but think of it more as that, that being alone is going to be most beneficial for me whenever I have the opportunity, whenever I'm up to being alone and practicing mindfulness. But when you have to be around others, um, focus on the fact that you're uncomfortable. You shouldn't feel uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is just a reaction. I mean, it's a reasonable reaction because, yeah, people are not very mindful, not very wholesome all the time. And so the result is not always pleasant. But try and be as mindful as you can and as present as you can. And it gets easier. Once you get skilled, being around people is not a hardship. It's not something you would prefer because it's not very useful, but it's not that hard once you get better at it. You might be a young person, if you live with your parents especially, and, and being young, part of being young is being inexperienced. And so over time, as you get older, you get more uh, able to hold your own in in society and in in relationships. What's the difference between the ways we approach the distractions in insight and concentration meditations? I think this is a well-thought-out question. I'm not so inclined to answer it because it gets sort of technical and it's it's just theoretical. Um, I mean, it, it, it boils down to the different... What is the difference between vipassana and samatha meditation? So samatha meditation is focused on a single object to the exclusion of all other objects. So you're to ignore any distractions and try to bring the mind back to the object sometimes the breath even. But with uh, vipassana, trying to see clearly, you note whatever arises. So a distraction is not actually a distraction, it's a new object to focus on. They call it, in some centers, they call it a uh, secondary object. So the difference is there. You still do try to go back to the original object, but only after your mind has come to see clearly the secondary object. So having a primary object is just still useful. And that's where the meditations are not entirely distinct. The distinction actually is more what which object you're, what type of object you're focusing on. But the bigger distinction because of that is that the object is going to change in, in Vipassana meditation. How should one work on all-encompassing conceit? I don't even know what that means. I mean, if you take out the all-encompassing, then you just have conceit, and conceit is something that an anagami uh, still has. Only an arahant gives up conceit, so it's a very challenging one. But it is eroded even at a sotapanna stage, so through the practice of vipassana meditation based on the four foundations of mindfulness. Does the state of mind at the point of death determine the rebirth destination or if we are reborn? Does the intention and act of taking your life with an unprepared mind inevitably lead to bad rebirths? We just talked about that this morning. I don't know if you're in our study group this morning, but technically, yes. Technically, it is the state of mind at the point of death, but that state of mind is going to be highly dependent on what sort of a person you've been in, in, in the life. So if you've been an evil, evil person throughout your life, there's not much chance that that last state of mind is going to be distinct. When you kill yourself, uh, taking your own life, when you kill yourself, that is a fairly profound inclination, a pr profound act. And so that's very likely going to affect the last moment of consciousness, which leads to the rebirth. But it's not always the case. There were, there were cases apparently where monks uh, acted, acted to end their own life, but before they died, their mind changed and they realized um, the, the truth of things. I mean, they, they 
as a result of the dying experience, they were able to see clearly. Because death can, if you're prepared for it, and they were. There's the case where a monk was quite prepared, but didn't feel like he was getting anywhere, and so killed himself. And so that was a bad thing, bad decision he had made. But all the good decisions he had made in terms of meditation allowed him, as he was dying, to see, see that he'd made a mistake and to change his perspective on things so that the, the reasons for killing himself were no longer reasons to do anything, to see them more just as experiences. It allowed him to rise above that conflict and that challenge. And so as he died, he, he, he became enlightened. Now, it's not to say that anyone killing themselves is going to become enlightened. It's, it's unlikely because it's a bad thing. It's an unwholesome thing. It's just that this guy had, had done a whole bunch of wholesome things that luckily uh, saw him through to the end. Okay, Bhante, we've crossed the hour and finished all of the top-tier questions. Okay. Sadhu, thank you all. Good Sadhu. session. Thank you, Chris, Ulu, Jim. Have a good week, everyone. Be well.